0: Volume four, chapter two of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, BC. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume four, chapter two it would be difficult to say whether willoughby wandering and solitary among the remote villages of yorkshire or celestina surrounded in london by what the world calls pleasure and amusement was the most internally wretched celestina's last dialogue with vasovar had convinced her that willoughby no longer thought of her even with that degree of friendship and tenderness which he had so often assured her nothing should destroy he was gone out of town merely to prepare for his marriage and gone without deigning either to see her or answer the letter she had written to him there was in such conduct so much unkindness and inhumanity that she began to hope her reflections on it would be by degrees abate the anguish she now felt and she listened to lady horatia who continually spoke of it as an unequivocal proof of willoughby's want of an heart capable of a generous and steady attachment to montague thorold however who now again returned to town after an absence on business of some little time she could not listen with so much complacency as her friend wished and she repeatedly told him that the greatest obligation he could confer upon her would be to desist from talking to her of love the certainty however there now seemed to be that willoughby No longer considered himself as interested about her her positive rejection of mr vasavur and the encouragement given him by lady horatia to persevere brought him continually to the house where their morning parties of reading recommenced and whenever they went out of an evening montague thoroughgood was their attendant thus drinking intoxicating draughts of love, and indulging hope that it would finally be successful. Willoughby now found without difficulty the person he sought, and whether it was that she had her lesson more completely, or was permitted to speak plainer of what she knew, she answered his inquiries in such a way as served to perplex, but not entirely to infirm the question whether Celestina was his mother's daughter. The woman was, in her mind and ideas, one of the lowest of the vulgar, yet her simplicity seemed to be affected, and all the proofs which had been talked of did not amount to her declaring that she was present at the birth of Celestina, or could produce any positive evidence of it she spoke principally to the time when she said the little girl was at nurse at kensington of which she related a great many particulars that staggered willoughby more than ever without convincing him yet all the woman said though it was consistent had the air of having been learned by rote and there was about her a sort of guarded cunning which seemed to have been acquired or at least improved by long practice willoughby attempted to discover whether she had not received money from lady castlenorth and to find what were her present means of substance but for these inquiries she also seemed prepared and gave at least a plausible account of a legacy left her by a great uncle that enabled her to live without servitude in her native country where she boarded with a relation and affected great piety and sanctity she blessed god she said that she scorned for the lucre of gain to belay any one dead or alive much more her good mistress who was gone but truth was truth and she hoped by the help of God, always to speak it plain and direct, without fee or reward. And as for Lady Castlenorth, added she, whom your honor thinks has paid me for speaking of this thing, pray consider your honor wherein it could be useful to my lady to put me upon saying a falsity if i was base enough to take money of my lady for it which to be certain i never did for what would that be as your honor well knows but selling my immortal soul and what good as i may say would all the gold and diamonds in the world do me if my precious soul was to perish because of them this can't to which willoughby listened with continued patience made him hope that he should in some instance or another detect her of inconsistency but though he saw her repeatedly and set farnham to watch her still more narrowly and to talk the matter over with her as if in confidence she was always so guarded that no contradiction could be discovered and after waiting near a week at the village, Willoughby was compelled to give up every idea of certainty coming at the truth, and to return towards London without being positively sure that Celestina was so nearly related to him, yet forced to allow that he could not, in contradiction to all he had heard of a child nursed in secret at Kensington, bring any sort of evidence on which he ought to rely that she was not so sick at heart and feeling too sensibly that all his future life must be unhappy his mind sunk in total despondence too certain it was that under such circumstances he could not think of marrying celestina yet he was unhappy conscious that he could not bear to think of her marrying another it was in vain he accused himself of something worse than folly the moment his mind dwelt on the subject he found that folly irresistible and while he determined that one of the first things he would do on his return should be to make a provision for celestina out of his remaining fortune he sickened in recollecting that such a provision would probably but facilitate her marriage with Montague Thorogood, and of Montague Thorogood he could not think with patience. Of his own situation in regard to the family of Fitzhaman, he thought with equal bitterness. He was but too conscious that to obtain the information he wanted from Hannah Biscoe, which he had flattered himself, would turn out very differently. He had renewed his attendance at the house of his uncle, and acted disingenuously and unlike himself. However indifferent or adverse he was to his cousin, his honor forbade him any longer to trifle with those sentiments which she evidently entertained in his favor. What then should he do? This question came continually before him, and was continually debated without his being able to form any resolution on which he could for a moment rest without pain. He sometimes thought that since in losing the only woman whom he could love he had lost all that could render his life happy, it was immaterial what became of him and that since he must be miserable, it might as well be in following as in flying from what he still thought was in some degree a duty, completing the inlark engagement that he had made to his mother on her death-bed. In doing this he should gratify all his surviving relations, and retrieve his estate, which he must otherwise sell. As the mortgages upon it were rapidly devouring it and to do this was as he sometimes tried to persuade himself to pay a debt he owed his ancestors he had been educated by his mother in high ideas of the consequence and respectability not only of her family but of that of his father but of these prejudices his natural good sense had suffered very little to remain so that if he now endeavored to recall them in support of those arguments which he ran over in favor of his marriage his understanding immediately revolted against them i shall not only retrieve said he but argument my fortune not only save Alvestone, but add to my present estate the family possessions of my mother which will otherwise become the property of strangers the honors too so long inherited by her ancestors will be mine he frequently made efforts to fix his mind on these advantages but the moment he began seriously to investigate their value he beheld them with contempt ridiculous cried he my ancestors what is this foolish family pride for which i am meditating to sell my freedom in acquiescence with narrow prejudice i shall have a large estate but will it make me happier in myself or more respected by those whose respect can afford me any pleasure i shall be called my lord a mighty satisfaction truly the vulgar for with such empty sounds the vulgar only are delighted will bow low to my lordship and i shall take place at country meetings above the neighboring esquires who are now my equals i shall have a bauble called a coronet painted on my coach doors and my hall chairs and shall become one of the legislator qualified for it only by the possession of that bauble perhaps half a dozen or half a hundred men and women of poor ambition may court the notice and boast of the acquaintance of lord castlenorth who would have let mr willoughby remain unmolested by their kindness and by such friends my house will be infested and my leisure destroyed But I shall go to court, and be named as having appeared at the drawing-room, that will be very delectable, certainly, and my wife's fine clothes will be described at full length, and the taste of my equipage be commended in all the newspapers. It will be there told of me that I am gone to this or that of my country houses and my six bays or greys or blacks will be celebrated in hyde park or be conspicuous in the roads within twenty miles of london while a thousand insignificant insipid beings whom i neither know nor desire to know shall say what a beautiful carriage what a well-appointed equipage is that of my lord castlenorth All this felicity in the aggregate and I know of no more than belongs to the possession of a title is certainly well worth the sacrifice I shall make to obtain it and my ancestors from their airy clouds will be infinitely delighted by the glory of their descendant but what will that descendant be in reality a mercenary a miserable wretch condemned to pass his life with a woman whom if he does not loathe he does not love to feel him a purchased husband and to have sold in sad exchange men's best birthright freedom for a mess of pottage to such soliloquies as these succeeded determinations to carry no farther any semblance of attention to Miss Fitzhayman but to go even from his present journey and without passing through london immediately abroad to mind unable to resist misery there frequently appears a possibility of flying from it and while willoughby dreaded the thoughts of returning to london he fancied that if he could cross over from hull to the north of europe he should leave some part of his present unhappiness behind him unsettled and unhappy as he was these debates with himself these vague plans of quitting everything and becoming a wanderer on earth became more usual with him but still he decided on nothing the idea of being compelled to sell Elvestone was the only one however that had great weight with him. To think that the place to which he had been so fondly attached should become the property of some upstart man of sudden fortune was accompanied by a sensation of acute uneasiness. He imagined those beautiful woods, the growth of centuries, fallen in compliance with the improving taste of a broker or a warehouseman, the park ploughed up to be converted into farms, and the elegant simplicity of his house and his grounds, destroyed by Gothic windows or Chinese ornaments, the shrubberies where he had wandered with Celestina, that turf where he had ran by her side when she was learning to ride, and where they used to walk arm in arm together, that house where he had hoped she would preside and grace so lovely a scene with a mistress yet more lovely all all were to become the property of another and the very name of willoughby and what was yet more painful the name of celestina should never more in those scenes be remembered yet in a moment the cruel truth occurred to him that whether this place belonged to him or another, Celestina would never again visit it, that he should never again hear her voice calling him among the beech woods, or trace her footsteps on the turf, never listen to her as she read in his mother's dressing-room, or hold her hand within his as they sat together on the woody banks of the waterfall. And marked its sparkling current leap from rock to rock and without her what would Alvestone be but a place where every spot would be haunted by melancholy images of departed happiness how little the indulgence of these painful contemplations would be interrupted or put an end to by any satisfaction he could derive from the conversation of miss fitz his sick and reluctant heart too plainly told him and then he again believed himself determined to sell all his estates and quit england if not for ever at least till time absence and the impossibility of his changing it had better reconciled him to that destiny which condemned him to give up celestina And to see her in the arms of another a desultory and unsettled life had within the last year become habitual to him and while he was actually moving from one place to another his spirits preyed less corrosively on themselves since to live as he wished to have lived in his own country was impossible he thought he should regret it less while he was wandering over others and since he could not now contemplate the face and character he so fondly loved he hoped that variety of characters and variety of faces would divert his regret if they could not cure his attachment there was too an idea of freedom and independence which accompanied his thus shaking off at once every encumbrance, that was not within its charms. And this disposition he thought contemptuously of mere local preference, as unworthy a strong mind, and determined to become a citizen of the world. And when his imagination he had settled his route, through Holland and France to Sicily, where he had long wished to see, and from thence to the archipelago he breathed freer and felt himself more reconciled to existence. He journeyed, however, slowly towards London, while these debates were carrying on, and at York, whither he had ordered his letters to be directed, he found one from Cathcart which related some circumstances in regard to his affairs that convinced him he could not, unless to the material injury of some persons who were connected with him, quit England without some regulation of these pecuniary concerns, which he had so long neglected, and would now willingly have escaped from. This letter determined him to return to London, though another letter from his sister, in which she mentioned, as an article of news, that Celestina was either actually married to Montague Thoroughgood, or, on the point of being so, threw him into a state of mind bordering on distraction. Reason, which had long fruitlessly contended against this fatal, and perhaps guilty, attachment, now seemed tired of a contention so hopeless and his mind became a chaos of conflicting passions, all equally destructive to his mental and bodily health. To return to London, however, was become necessary, and Farnham, his old faithful servant, persuaded him to take post-chaise for the rest of his journey. He arrived, after an absence of above three weeks, at the house of Lady Molyneux and there heard that a few days before lady horatia howard had publicly spoken of celestina's marriage with the young divine as a settled thing that his father had brought for him a considerable living in gloucestershire where they were to reside and where a curate was settled till he was himself qualified to take it and thither as there was a very good house upon it, they were going immediately after their marriage. Willoughby heard all this without being able to make a reply, and then hastened to his own lodgings, from whence he dispatched Farnham for intelligence from the servants of Lady Horatia, the coachman with whom he had some time before made an acquaintance and who was a very talkative fellow, immediately informed him of all he knew, and much that he imagined. He said it was very true that Mr. Thorogood lived almost always at their house. And my lady, said the man, my lady loves him for all the world, as if he was her own son. There they are all morning reading playbooks, and such together, as my fellow-servants tell me, that is, my lady and miss, and this here young divine as is to be, and then they go out in my coach, all's one as if they belong to the same family, and I do understand as how my lady is to give her a portion, and they are to be married out of hand that is in a little time, and believe that's the very truth of the thing, for my lady have bought another coach horse within these ten days, and told me, Abraham, says she, I shall go early next month into Gloucestershire, instead of going to Matlock as I talked of, and I shall go in the coach instead of the post-chaise because I have some friends with me." This account, which Farham faithfully repeated to Willoughby, confirmed almost beyond a doubt all Lady Molyneux had related to him. Some more recent intelligence that he had received from Cathcart as to the embroiled state of his affairs in the country combined to render him desperate. And he had been so long harassed between his love and his interest, his honor and his reluctance, that he suddenly took the resolution of putting it out of his own power to undergo again such variety of torments, like a wretch who leaps from a ship on fire into the sea, though certain of meeting death in another shape he formed the determination of making himself since he must be wretched as completely wretched as possible he thought of celestina as his relation in vain it abated nothing of that anguish with which he considered her as the wife of montague thorold and so hideous were the images that forced themselves upon him That he found his reason had no power to subdue them and though that nothing could so decidedly oblige him to check them as his marriage and without giving himself time to consider how desperate was the remedy he went immediately to the house of lord castlenorth declared to him that he was satisfied as to the object of his journey and took the most immediate opportunity, after his return, of expressing his solicitude to avail himself of his cousin's generous predilection in his favor, and to fulfill the wishes of his deceased mother and his surviving family. The eager and tremendous manner in which lie uttered all this, and which was in reality the effect of despair and anguish lord castlenorth mistook for the anxiety and impatience of love his nephew had never spoke this decisively before and seeing thus what he had so long fondly wished for out of doubt his first idea was to proceed instantly in securing to willoughby the revision of those titles on which he had set so high a value himself, while therefore he sat out in his chariot, supported by Mrs. Calder, who always attended him, to solicit the completion of a business which he had hither proceeded but slowly, and fancied the happiness of all parties would be wonderfully advanced by his success. Willoughby, with such sensations as determined suicide alone could envy, was making to Lady Castlenorth the same declaration, and was immediately afterwards allowed, or rather desired, to present himself at the feet of her fair daughter. End of volume four. Chapter two. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.